of Colossians and then uh, come back to it. Well, it may actually be more time than that. I might be misspeaking. But I, I, um, with some of the stuff that's coming up and me being gone on a Sunday, I had uh, organized the preaching calendar and I realized I had left a blank in next week's uh, um, uh, sermon slot. And I don't want to move things because I don't want to confuse others who are going to, to be preaching in my stead. Uh, so next week, in case you want to be getting ready for it, we, I'm going to be preaching the book of Ruth in one sermon. I, one of the things I like to do is preach a whole book in one sermon. And Ruth is one of my absolute favorite books, uh, an incredible uh, masterpiece of, of literature uh, let alone scripture, and so we'll be looking at the book of Ruth. But this week, uh, I want to I talk about Acts chapter 2, particularly verses 42 through 47, and I will read that to you here in a moment, and then I will pray and explain why we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 today. So here it says, and they, that is the church in Jerusalem at its very founding, that's the they there, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today to declare your goodness and your glory and your might, uh, to, to proclaim that you have uh, not only purchased the church, but that you build the church. So Lord, may we be a church that is marked by our fellowship, by our affection for one another, by our kindness towards one another, by, by, by the sincerity of, of our relationships and affection towards one another, that the world might look at us and take note and, and wonder what it is that has been done among us that causes us to be towards one another as we are. Lord, we pray this morning not only for us, but for Amazing Grace Church and for uh, Pastor Bill as he preaches this morning. Father, we pray that you, would, um, that you would call believers to yourself through that church, that you would uh, disciple believers into maturity. Father, we pray that from now until uh, your return, you would, um, you would keep us faithful, uh, faithful to the gospel, faithful to evangelize the lost, faithful to, to speak of the glorious things that Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray that we uh, would take seriously the call to reach the lost with the gospel, that we would uh, invite uh, neighbors to church, but more than to church, into our homes, and more than just that we would invite to places that we would tell people about what Jesus has done for us and, and implore them to believe and invite them to be reconciled to you. And Lord, we know that it is you who does that, that you are the one who calls us, you are the one who saves us, but you use us as messengers. And so, Lord, let us be faithful messengers and then trust you to do uh, the work in hearts that only you can do. 
Father, we pray this morning for Bob and Teresa at Reister. We thank you for their uh, ability to return to Japan uh, amidst the difficulty that some are having and that they were welcomed back into the country. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that they are reconnecting with, uh, with, with people there and with believers there. Lord, we also thank you for the ministry that is going on there. And so, Lord, we ask that as they begin an English class this March, uh, that there would be just great opportunity to, uh, to reach out to people and to share the gospel there. Uh, Lord, as they're looking for new areas and, and places to have Bible classes, would you open doors to make that happen, that your word might be proclaimed there in Japan through their work? Lord, we thank you that, uh, uh, that this exercise group that Bob's a part of is going well, Lord, and we just pray that there would be gospel opportunities uh, there as well. Lord, we thank you that, that, um, that even as we have prayed for them over the last year, we have prayed for more workers, and that you have... Uh, you have brought two families who desire to come and who desire to take part in the work that they're doing there. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your faithfulness uh, to what's going on over there. But we ask that you would make the, these families able to come, whether that be financially on this end or with visas and being able to get into the country on that end. And, Lord, for the five short-term workers uh, who I believe are scheduled or at least needed to, to come this summer, Lord, we ask that you would raise them up and that you would bring them safely and that they would be able to do work that is... Uh, genuinely and truly beneficial to the work that Bob and, and Teresa are doing there. Lord, now as we turn to your word, uh, we continue to ask week by week that you would, uh, you would cause the word to sound out, to sound forth from us, uh, not only here in this room, but in our lives and uh, in, in our growth groups and in our classes and just in our relationships every day, Lord. May we be faithful to take the gospel out into the world and may it be proclaimed all around us. Lord, give us open eyes and soft hearts to your word, a willingness to obey even at times when it might seem scary. Father, we just thank you for uh, the privilege of knowing you, loving you, worshiping you. And we ask that you would uh, just give us soft hearts to obey you today as we look to your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the last couple of weeks in Colossians, we've looked at the nature of the Apostle Paul's ministry, uh, not just to the church at Colossae, but uh, writ large as, as he was a minister of the gospel, and the implications that that has had for us. Well, I want us to take just a detour this week and look here at these verses at the very founding of the church in Acts. And I want to see what, that, what implications that has for us as we consider um, getting ready for Easter. Now, one thing has been very clear to me as I've gotten to know Trinity over the last seven months, and, and this is um, a, a great commendation to you all. But, but Trinity is clearly and, and obviously been a, a church that has worked hard at inviting others to join in. Uh, to invite, whether it's non-believers, to come and see what the worship uh, of God looks like and to hear the gospel. I, and I'm pretty sure nobody woke up this morning and came here and said, man, I hope it's a small crowd at church this morning. I hope nobody joins us. I hope there's no new people uh, because that would be scary. I hope there's no non-believers. We all have that desire, right? We, we want people, whether it's this church or another, to join in the praise of God. One of my favorite things uh, I ever heard John Piper say, and, and it's just, it's, it's worked in my mind over and over and over again for the last years, as I can, uh, the last dec couple of decades as I consider it. He said this, he said, missions exists so that worship will. Think about that for a second. 
In our local context, evangelism exists so that worship will. We're inviting people to join in the chorus of worshipers who worship in, in truth and spirit and song and in many ways. But, but I think one of the things we see, and the reason I want to take this week and talk about it, is because COVID is probably going to change what Easter looks like at Trinity. Uh, you know, a, a, a big production as far as breakfast and opportunities for fellowship and hoping that new, new, new people come and, and opportunities for relationship probably are not going to present themselves in the same way they have in the past. Whether that's because people are, are just disinclined to come because of the, the culture that we live in or because of COVID. And so while inviting is really, really good, especially for people who, who know nothing about Christianity it may look a little different this year. I used to say, I've probably said this before, I'm going to say it again. I used to say that evangelism, inviting people to church is not evangelism. That telling people about Jesus is evangelism. But, but I, I don't think that was entirely right. I think our evangelism cannot consist entirely of merely inviting people to church. But I think one component of our evangelism can and should be the invitation in fact, just the other day as I was reading John chapter 1, uh, several times as Jesus begins his public ministry in John chapter 1, he, he simply calls people to come and see. I think it was Andrew who says, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And later uh, another uh, apostle or, or disciple begins to follow him and, and he says, come and see. And so there's something uh, uniquely wonderful, especially for those who know nothing of Christianity, just to come and see, to come and see what the church is like. But I think the difference is in their culture, when, when a rabbi said, come and follow me, that was an incredible invitation. And we live in a culture that is, is moving further and further and further away from being inclined to accept an invitation to church. Our, our next steps in being a, a welcoming church might be a little different or, or probably should be a little different than they were 20 years ago or especially 40 years ago. The, the first invitation in John chapter 1, this come and see invitation, it wasn't an invitation to hear him teach. It wasn't an invitation to the temple. It wasn't an invitation to a synagogue. This first come and see invitation of Jesus was just to come and see where he lived. Where are you staying, teacher? Come and see. And this first come and see turned into a, another come and see. And, an, and eventually it turned into a come and follow. And then it turned into a come and believe, which is really also the call to, to come and die. To come and die to ourselves and to gain eternal life. But the first invitation was not an invitation to teaching or preaching or temple or synagogue. It was simply an invitation to see where Jesus lived. And so this morning in Acts chapter 2, I want us to begin to prepare our hearts and minds for what Easter uh, and Easter outreach during COVID and apart from COVID during the culture we live in in 2021 might look, uh, what might look like. And so this morning we're going to see six characteristics of a growing church. Now, that might seem like a lot, but I'm, I'm doing you a great favor, genuinely. As I looked at this passage to start, I initially had 13 characteristics 
of a growing church in these verses. And if you want the full list, I'll be happy to share that with you. Just email me or let me know. But I want to look at six characteristics of a growing church. And then I want to see how that applies to us. And so first we see that a growing church is biblical. A growing church is a biblical church. Look with me at verse 42. And they, again that they there, is the church in Jerusalem, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted here, it, it connotes perseverance or, or a single-minded fidelity. It, it's it's the, the finish line mentality. There is something in front of me. There is a goal. I am pressing towards it, and, and I've got blinders on, and I'm going to, to do nothing, see nothing, look at nothing until I reach the goal. Now, this is, to be fair, not the only thing they were devoted to. They were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers, and we'll get to those as well. But the first thing that they were devoted to was the apostles' teaching. Today, we call the apostles' teaching Scripture. Now, the scriptures that they had in their hand, particularly at this point in Acts chapter 2, consisted solely of what we call the Old Testament. And so the, the apostles took the Old Testament and they explained it, they exegeted it, they showed uh, Christ from the Old Testament and then the Holy Spirit through them wrote the New Testament, which is a great advantage to us. But all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. What we believe it really matters. It really matters. And what we teach really matters. This is why one of the qualifications of an elder is that he must be able to refute false doctrine and to correct those who contradict it. There are some in the world, uh, even in, in, in evangelicalism and Christian circles, who say, oh, we don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. Yes, it does. It divides truth from error. It does divide. It doesn't have to divide us, however. And let me see if I can clear, clarify that. First off, I should say this. You cannot be saved without doctrine. And so to say that doctrine doesn't matter is a really dangerous position for any church to take. To say that we believe that we are sinners by choice and by nature, that the holy, eternal God rightly and righteously angry towards our sin in great love and affection and kindness for us became one of us took on flesh the creator became part of his creation and he lived the sinless life that you and I can't live perfectly obedient to God's law in every way and that when he deserved no punishment because he lived perfectly he died in our place for us on our behalf, and he was buried. He was resurrected three days later in victory and, and, and in, in, in a great display of his ability to give us life. God the Father vindicating the work of God the Son at the cross and offering those who would repent of their sin, that is, turn from it and turn towards Christ in faith, are saved. That is the bedrock of our doctrine. That is the bedrock of what we believe. But that right there is also the essential thing. It is the drive train 
of Christianity. Must we agree on everything? Not, no. There are faithful believers in Jesus Christ who love the Lord and I'm convinced are genuinely saved, who disagree, disagree with us on the mode and means of baptism or on the timing and the events surrounding the return of Christ or on various other numbers of issues. And so Christians don't have to agree on everything, but we have to get the gospel right. We must be devoted to the teaching of God's word. As a church, we must never stop teaching God's word. We must, we must never stop being devoted to being biblical. 2 Timothy 4.2 commands of, of elders that we preach the word in season and out of season. What does it mean to be in season or out of season? I don't know. But here's what I do know. There are only two seasons. In season and out of season. And whatever those seasons are, the church of God must be committed to being biblical. When it's popular to preach God's word, we preach God's word. And when it's not popular to preach God's word, we preach God's word. When it's not offensive, when it is offensive, or, or maybe even it's our own seasons. There's been seasons in ministry. I, I never thought of uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2 this way uh, until there was a season when I just did not feel like preaching. And it became not the season out there, but it became the season in here. And God says, in season and out of season, preach the word. It should not be lost on us that that verse to preach the word in season and out of season comes only two verses after 2 Timothy 3.16 where we're told that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Therefore, we preach the word in season and out of season. The word must be central to what we do. It must saturate our lives. It must saturate our ministry. It must saturate our conversations, our adult Bible classes, our growth groups. We are to be a word-centered church. And so a growing church is first, biblical. A growing church is secondly, relational. It is relational. Uh, relationships are uh, one of the core necessities of the church. It is how God has designed us because he is relational. He has eternally existed as a trinity of three persons in one God. Three who's, one what. And, and, and as a relational God, he has de uh, uh, designed us for relationships. And so notice that the second thing that the church was devoted to was not just the apostles' teaching, but to the fellowship. To the fellowship. The word here, you've probably heard it before, koinonia, it means partnership. And I think it means more than just hanging out and spending time together. It can mean that. It does certainly does not mean any less than that, but that's not all it means. It, it is a, a, a committed, communal living for a purpose. Take a moment and look around this room. This is the koinonia, the fellowship of Trinity. It is the people who God has given us to do life with. It is the people whom God has given us to be accountable to. It is the people who God has given us to encourage and to be encouraged to correct and to be corrected. 
to weep with, to laugh with, and, and everything in between. This is the fellowship of the church. And we are to be a relational body. But not only do we see that in verse 42 where, they see, where we see that the church was devoted to fellowship, we also see that in verse 46. Notice that it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now I'm going to explain why this breaking bread is different from breaking bread in verse 42 in just a minute. But notice that this is an in-home breaking of bread. This is not a reference to communion. And again, I'll, I'll say why in just a minute. This is a reference to sharing meals together in one another's homes. From Romans to 1 Peter and, and many other places in Scripture, the church is commanded to be hospitable, especially towards one another, but then also towards others. I think God has just made something magical about sharing a meal together. You know, there's just something different about sitting down with people and, and eating and I think that's by God's design. In fact, Jesus, the night he, he was betrayed and the night he went to the cross, and as we're going to celebrate the meal that he was having with his disciples, even that night, and as he was pointing forward to his death, said that he will not partake of that meal again until he does in his kingdom, which means in his kingdom, when our fellowship is perfect, when, we're completely, when our fellowship is completely unbroken by sin, and the destructive patterns in relationships that happen because of sin, we will still eat together. And so they broke bread together in each other's homes. I'm here to tell you, if you do not often or regularly share a meal with other people from Trinity, whether that's in your home or theirs, or maybe your version of hospitality is taking them out to a meal or coffee or whatever it may be, you're robbing yourself of, of some joy. There's just something wonderful about spending time with people, something that changes us as we hear their stories and express ours and recount the goodness of God in our lives. We can even do this on Sunday mornings. Make it a point today as you leave to speak to somebody you don't regularly do. Maybe you're like, man, I've, I know they've gone here for a couple years and I don't know their name. I can't go introduce myself because then I have to admit that I don't know their name. Just go do it anyways. Just, just go say hi. Strike up a conversation. Make the most of your Sunday mornings. Devote your Sunday mornings to being here. Whether that's fellowshipping in an adult Bible class or maybe for one service, you just have coffee with people. New people, old people, lots of people. Treat, treat the coffee corner like a coffee shop and just spend an hour engaging with people and then worshiping together. The church must be relational. Thirdly, a growing church is not only biblical and relational, a growing church is also worshipful. A growing church is worshipful. Again, return with me to verse 42. They had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's biblical, and the fellowship, that's relational, but also to the breaking of bread. And there's the distinction between verse 46, where in homes what's happening is breaking of bread, and, and in the church when there is the breaking of bread. It's one thing to break bread in homes around a table and to share a meal. It's another thing to gather as a church, as we will hear momentarily, for the breaking of bread. Where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
where, where we, we recount and see visibly and tangibly, where we, where we see others participate and we taste even our participation, not only with the Lord in his death and in his resurrection, but with one another as one body in Christ who partakes together. They were a worshipful church. They were committed not only to the teaching of the apostles, which is the speaking of the gospel, but they were committed to the the seeing of the gospel. In the preaching of the word, we hear the gospel spoken. But in, in, in baptism and communion, we see the gospel displayed. God was very, very clear in his worship with Israel that they were not to, to, uh, to put up images. They were not to put up anything that was a, a picture of God or a representation of God. That they were to worship in this pure way. But all along the way, whether it be sacrifice in the old covenant or baptism and communion in the new, God has given his people visible, tangible expressions of the gospel. It's one of the reasons, if I may beat a little bit of a drum here, it's one of the reasons why we don't want to be excessive in our use of things like lighting and mood and, and all those kind of things. Because God has given us what the church is to do in terms of seeing the gospel displayed. And the great displays of the gospel in the church are baptism where we declare that the one, the individual who has believed, belongs to the many. And in communion where we declare together that the many are one in Christ. And so we are to be a worshipful community. But not only do we see that they were worshipful in that they were devoted to the breaking of bread, we see it in that uh, they were, where is it? Verse 43, oh, there it is. I was looking too far down. Notice that they were devoted to teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread, and awe came upon every soul. This is the Greek word phobos. We get phobia from it. And fear, not not crippling fear, not terror, but awe and wonder and fear came upon every soul. The nature of the church's worship and fellowship brought awe. Low thoughts of God, low teaching of who God is and what he has done for us will never produce this kind of awe and neither will a half-hearted commitment to Christ and his glory. But when we are fully committed to knowing God, to knowing one another, to being known and to being a, a biblical and worshipful and relational community, there is awe in that. The world takes notice they, they go, what is going on there? What, what has happened to these people that they are like that? Fourthly, and this will be quickly, they were a prayerful community. Notice that they were devoted, again, to the apostles' teaching, that's doctrine, to the fellowship, that's relationship, to the breaking of bread, that's worship, and to the prayers. What is prayer? Well, at its most simple definition, it is, it is just talking to God. But more than that, and I think the reason prayer is so hard for us, is, is at its core level, it's a confession of our dependence upon God. I think the thing that maybe makes my life or maybe marks the times of prayerless the most is almost always self-reliance. 
When I believe that I'm capable enough and strong enough and good enough and able, I tend to pray little. But when things are completely out of my control, I tend to pray much. Prayer is at its bedrock, a confession of our dependence upon God. It is tremendously powerful, and at least in my own personal experience, far too often woefully ignored. My encouragement is to work hard to make sure that your prayers abound in spiritual things. In fact, that that spiritual prayers and concerns would outweigh our commitment to pray for earthly things. It is so easy to pray for others' health and healing and jobs and families. And those are wonderful things to pray for, but they're right in front of us. They're tangible. We can see them, and usually they're answered much more quickly. Oh, but be sure to spend time as you pray for your children and for the church and for yourself and for one another to pray for spiritual things as well. They are far more important and we are far more dependent upon God for those than we imagine. Fifthly, we see that a growing church is not only biblical, relational, worshipful, and prayerful, a growing church is evangelical. A growing church is evangelical. What does that mean? The word evangelical just means those who share the good news. The Greek word euangelion, which is where we get uh, evangelical from, simply means that. It is good news. And so, so an evangelical church is a church that desires to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who do not know them. Where do I see that they were evangelical in this text? Well, look with me at verse um, 46, and day by day, that's a Greek way of saying daily, attending the temple together. What temple? This is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that on Saturday would have been filled with priests and temple sacrifice and worship and singers But Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that the church was committed to worshiping God, it was filled with the church. They not only worshiped publicly, they worshiped in a place that didn't even agree with what they believed. And so there are three implications of their early evangelical worship. First, it was daily. This showed their commitment to the Lord and to each other. Secondly, it was public. The temple was the center for Jewish worship, and they went there on a less busy day, Sunday, to worship as well. And third, it was corporate. It was not just public and, 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 and uh, um, what's the other thing I said there? Daily. It was also corporate. Notice that daily they were attending the temple together. It was corporate worship. John 13, 35 says this, by, all, by this, all will know that you are, di- are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think functionally, often the church operates under, under the idea that this is what Jesus said. That all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for the world. Now, I'm not in any way saying that the church is not to have love for the world. It is, 
But I think at times we wonder why when we gossip about one another and complain about one another and refuse to forgive one another and avoid each other and there's tensions in the church and then we go out and we do good things in the world, why people just aren't believing. But the truth of the matter is, if we're going to invite people into the church to see worship, to be part of the public worship of God, to hear the gospel, we've got to make sure that we're devoted to loving one another. A, a church that, that doesn't love one another is, is kind of like a, a house that has been lived in a little too long by too many cats. You walk into that house and instantly you go, something stinks. You don't even have to see a cat, but you know what's going on. When there's broken relationships in the church, when we refuse to forgive one another, when we talk about one another instead of talking to one another, when we're given to complaint, even when we invite people in, they come in and they go, something's not right here. We are to love the world. That is commanded of us. But Jesus said that all people will know that we are his disciples when we have love for one another. They can't, have they can't know we have love for one another if they don't ever see us together, whether that be in the church or in the world. If you remember back to our series on the one another's, we talked about greet one another with a holy kiss. And I, I said, I'm not encouraging people to go around kissing others, but in that day and in that culture, it was a visible, countercultural sign of affection. And so a growing church is an evangelical church that loves one another well and seeks to call others to join in its worship. And sixthly, and finally, at least for this sermon, uh, a growing church is a joyful church. Notice that they were day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. There it is, glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. That says a lot. I think there's a connection here, by the way, between glad and generous. These are connected ideas. Generous people are usually glad people. And generous people are usually glad people, not because they have an abundance of things. I've met incredibly glad, incredibly generous, incredibly poor people. They're glad because they don't have an inordinate attachment to earthly things. Their treasure is not found in what they can get in this world, but in what they have been given by Jesus Christ. And so they're free to, to give. And I think there's a connection between these two. They're glad to bless. They're glad to give. And so we see here, uh, bringing this to a conclusion, that a growing church is biblical, relational, worshipful, prayerful, evangelical, and joyful. What is the result of a church like that? Verse 47, they had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A church that conducts itself like this is a church that is not only able to have favor with the people, but has favor with the Lord. We should note that it is not our message that gives us favor. Our message is offensive. 
we all had to trip over the gospel at some point. We all had to wrestle with the fact that we were sinners in need of saving, that God was rightly angry with us, that he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that he has forgiven us based upon his merit and what he has done, not based upon us and our goodness and what we deserve. Our message is offensive. That's not what gives us favor. It's our lives. It's the way we conduct ourselves in here. It's the way we conduct ourselves out there. And and when our lives are radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that it's evident that our unity is not based upon our our common interest in earthly things, but upon the fact that, that our Savior died for us and we have him in common. When, when we conduct ourselves in that way relationally, the world goes, maybe I should rethink their message. When, when they perceive us as throwing stones, when, here's, here's, here's the reality. When we are more consi- concerned with the sins of unbelievers than the sins of the redeemed, we lose credibility. Our sins are much more offensive to God. Do I actually mean that? Sure I do. Why? Because we know better. Why is a man who does not provide for his own household worse than an unbeliever? Because he knows better. But it's a whole lot easier to throw stones out there. People who don't know better than in here. When it's our lives that are completely and radically transformed by the gospel and we're devoted to this message and we're devoted to fellowship and we're devoted to prayer and we're devoted to worship and we're devoted to evangelism and relating to one another as we ought, our lives cause them to rethink our message. But notice, even at that point, it is not us that adds people to the church. End of verse 47 the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's not us. The Lord gives faith. The Lord saves people. The Lord adds people to his church. It is God's responsibility to add people to his church. It is our responsibility with his help to be the kind of church that he wants to add people to. So what do we do? Well, first... One of the things we do is, like the church here, that uh, day by day went to the temple, that put worship of Christ on display publicly, we, like the church, invite people to join us. An invitation is wonderful. And so you'll notice out in the lobby, there are door hangers and cards everywhere. Take some, give them out, invite people. Tell people, come and see what Easter looks like. Come and see what Easter is about. Come and hear about the resurrected Christ. We want to, like the church in Jerusalem, invite people to join us in worship. But second, we also want to invite people to come and see. Not necessarily come and see here, but come and see house to house. Come and see like Jesus. Where do you live? Well, come and see. Some people who won't, some people may accept an invitation to church. 
But let's just say we all take the 12 house challenge and the three people to the right of your home and the three people to the left of your home and the six people across the street, they all get an invitation to Trinity. How many of those are likely to come here on Easter morning? I don't know. Even if one does, that would be incredible. That would be well worth the effort. But of those same 12 homes, how many might be willing to come to your house to share a meal or a cup of coffee or a barbecue or something like that? We want to invite people to come and see. And so we're going to do something. In fact, we're so invested in the, fa- in the idea that that is what God has designed for us. It is how one of the ways that evangelism happens best, simply the invitation to come and see, that we as a church, as Trinity, want to do something that is listed in these verses here. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We've taken the remainder of our outreach budget for this year, because this fiscal year, because there is so uh, few opportunities for us to do that in large ways, and we want to invest those back into you. Pastor Chris, this was his idea, it was a great idea, he called it a reverse offering. We've purchased $125 gift cards, and and you're going to get one on your way out. And if you refuse, we're going to mail you one. And if you're online and you've been letting us know that you're here, we're going to mail you one. We want to distribute the proceeds from what the church has given house to house so that each of us has no excuse and in fact a responsibility to invite somebody to come over and just share a meal. If you're terrified about the idea of talking about Jesus, that's okay. Your first step is just to say, come and see. Come and see where I live. If you really want to get them, invite another family from here on the same night. Make them meet church people. Let them see these relationships. Let them see worship and awe. If you're uncomfortable telling them about the gospel... Just ask if, you know, just say, hey, we're going to pray before we eat and pray the gospel. We we believe in, in, in God's plan for the church. And so please take cards and invite people to come. But take a gift card and invite a neighbor to your house to share a meal with you and just let them come and see I think, I think in this way, I can't tell you how excited I am about this. I think in this way, COVID is releasing the church to do some of the greatest ministry we've ever thought of. And it's going to be some of the simplest ministry we've ever thought of as well. It doesn't take teams and organizing. In fact, uh, I really don't want to be the hero of my own stories often. Jesus is our hero but there was just too cool of an opportunity that presented itself last night. We were in the, Jennifer and I were in the grocery store, and one of our neighbors said, don't you live on my street? And we stood in Safeway and talked for like half an hour, and I'm like, can, can you, can, are you interested in coming over sometime and having dinner? And he's like, yeah, I'd love to. So now this week, I got to go follow up and say, hey, come over to our house, have a meal. We're going to exercise some hospitality. The church is to be Biblical, relational, worshipful, prayerful, evangelical, 
joyful, and then we trust the Lord to do what only he can do. Lord, we ask you to add to our number, day by day, those who are being saved. Lord, make us, make us a loving community of believers who delight to be together, who are willing to forgive as you have forgiven us, who, who talk to one another and not about one another. And Lord, may the world see that, that, th those relationships and take note. May they see what the gospel does when it is effectually working amongst your people. Lord, we look forward to Easter and to the joy it will be. And we ask you to bring people that Sunday and that they might hear the gospel. But give us faithfulness to proclaim the greatness and the glory of Christ day by day by day. And as we turn now, Lord, to the breaking of bread, and as we, as we see this picture of what Christ has done for us in giving his body and his blood to bear the punishment that we justly deserve so that we can be completely released from it, completely freed from it, completely moved into grace and favor with you. Lord, may we see and taste your goodness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had brought in your, uh, your communion elements, I would encourage you to take those out now. Remember that the top peels in two parts. And uh, I grew up in a house full of women who always needed help putting on jewelry, and I could, like, never do it. My aunt used to always tell me I had man hands. So if you have man hands and these are difficult to open like me, we're going to take a moment to open these. Uh, remove the wafer first before you open the juice. It'll be much, much easier that way. But we are devoted to being a biblical community, a community that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. A community that, that, that comes together uh, around these elements to proclaim that Christ has not only redeemed us from the curse of the law, but that he has, he has saved us into one body. And so we come together to proclaim not only his, his death and resurrection and life for us, but to proclaim our unity. And this is why we take these elements together. And after giving those instructions, which I've really just summarized in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul comes to chapter 11, and he, he addresses the issue of division again. And notice he, he addresses the issue of division in relationship to communion, because, because we have been placed into one body, and as we are all partakers of the symbols of Christ's body, we are reminded that we are one body, and so he calls us to do away with factions and that our love might be genuine towards one another, and our care might be genuine towards one another. And then after reminding us of our unity and of God saving us into one body, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance. 
remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, may we be found faithful to proclaim your death to being an evangelical church and living evangelical lives until you return to take us home to glory. And let it all be for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray. Amen.